Thanks for joining us today for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. The church office is open Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 590 West Orange Avenue in El Centro, or call 760-337-9400 for information or for prayer. Christ Community Church has three campuses in El Centro, Brawley, and Calexico, plus a congregation in Spanish. As we navigate the end of the COVID-19 quarantine season and transition to in-person regathering, we encourage you to find up-to-date information about events and each campus's worship service schedule. When you follow us on social media, on our website at www.cccib.org, or simply download the CCCIV app, you'll find the direct link to the app at www.cccib.org forward slash get the app or when you text cccib app to 77977 this morning if you lack peace if you feel like there's turmoil if you feel like your life is a struggle could that be by god's design because god's trying to grab hold of your attention God's trying to say, hey, there's a relationship that is out of order in your life. Hey, there's, there's a direction that you're pursuing in your career or in your education that isn't quite right. Hey, there's some unconfessed sin that you're harboring or that you're holding on to, and you need to make that right. Hey, there's some bitterness or some anger that you haven't let go of just yet. And so God removes your peace so that you can get that right with him. God loves you enough to pursue you to that place. Jesus tells the story to his disciples of a shepherd in Matthew chapter 18. And he says, which one of you, as a man, if he has a hundred sheep, wouldn't leave the 99 sheep to pursue the one sheep that has gone astray? That shepherd will leave the 99 together in the flock. They will pursue the one sheep that has gone astray. They will seek him down, find him. That shepherd will search high and low until that sheep has been found. And then he'll bring that sheep back into the fold, rejoicing over the one sheep that was found than over the 99 that never were led astray. This is what Jesus, our good shepherd, does in our lives for us. And sometimes in order to pursue us, he's, he allows us to lose our peace. Nebuchadnezzar says there, I thought I had it all together. I was at ease. I was prospering. But then I had this vision and this dream. And literally it says it terrified me. When he says I was afraid, that means I was terrified. I was sapped of my strength. I was sapped of my peace. It was fleeting. I couldn't find it. Something was wrong and I couldn't place my finger on it. God loves you enough this morning, and I, I want you to hear this very clearly. If you're in a place this morning where you lack peace, that is God pursuing you, saying something in your life needs to be made right. And when you make that thing right, whether it's a confession, whether it's forgiveness, right, whatever that thing might be, when you make that thing right, peace will return. I say this often, but God will guide us by the presence of or the absence of peace. When you have peace, when your life feels at rest, you can know and you can understand that I'm in the center of God's will. I'm walking with the Lord, receiving from God, doing what he's called me. When peace is absent, you need to understand that there's something that isn't right in your life and you need to get on your hands and your knees before the Lord and say, show me what it is because I want peace with you again. Amen? Nebuchadnezzar says, I thought I had it all, but I was terrified when I had this dream. Look at it. It says, as I lay in bed, 
The fancies and the visions of my head, they alarmed me. So I made a decree that all of the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, and they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, isn't this interesting that Nebuchadnezzar would do this? Do you remember in Daniel chapter 2, we saw how Daniel was able to give this amazing interpretation even though he hadn't yet heard the dream. There's a spiritual lesson that you can see here in the life of Nebuchadnezzar because what Nebuchadnezzar does here is he returns to the old way. He had seen God move miraculously. He had seen an amazing interpretation given even though he had never disclosed the dream. But you know what? Some 30, 35 years goes by. He forgets that that's what God can do and he starts to handle things the old way. I wonder if there's any of us in here that might be guilty of that, that you started walking really fervently, really faithful with with God, and you were willing to allow God to move in your life, to surrender control. But as you have walked with the Lord, slowly but surely you're trying to take the reins back, aren't you? You're going back to the old way of handling things, the old way of figuring things out, doing it in the flesh. I can handle this on my own. Well, that doesn't please the Lord. Right? uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes back to doing things the old way. Now look at this. He's going to give this account of the dream. Verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me, who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that there is no mystery that is too difficult to you, uh, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was the food for all. The beasts of the field found their shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst all the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end uh, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because of all of the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me this interpretation, but you are, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he tells Daniel the vision. Here's what the dream was like. This is what was said in the dream. There's this tree, it reaches to the heavens. All of the, the, the life in the earth can come and dwell under its shade. They're all fed by its branches, by its fruit. It reaches to the heavens as far as the eye can see. This 
this tree covers everything and protects everything is, and, and is there for everyone. But then this tree is lopped off. It's cut off. The branches stripped barren. Nothing left. Right? Why? This was done so that the world might know that God puts humble people in control. Now, at the end of this account, at the end of this, this narration, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar's just done for Daniel, he says at the end, but here's the deal, Daniel. I know that there's something different about you. Again, all of my wise men, my magicians, my enchanters, they couldn't give me the interpretation. But you're different, Daniel. The, the spirit of the holy gods dwells within you. I see something different in you than I see in anyone else. There's a testimony that Daniel has. I love that this is the case in the book of Acts, the disciples are kind of conversing with the religious leaders. They're bantering back and forth. They're discussing spiritual truth. They're discussing the gospel. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, this is what it says. When the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and common or untrained men, they weren't religious leaders. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's something attractive when the world can look at you and see the Spirit of God dwelling within you, that's attractive to the lost world. If you respond to the things of the world the way the world does, you look no different. But what if there were a group of people who were anointed by the Spirit of God, that were led by His Word, that were in obedience to His Word, that when things happened in life, you just praise God and you continue worshiping God and you don't complain? What if there are hackers that are shutting down pipelines? What if you just bless the Lord and you continue on preaching the gospel? Right? What if there are, are things like this where, where you know, we, we don't have gas, we don't have toilet paper, or one day maybe our grocery stores close down, maybe the trucks are not running, maybe the shelves are barren. How will you respond in that moment? Will people look at you and say, you know what, you're different than everyone else. I can see the spirit of God is in you. That's powerful. Nebuchadnezzar looks to Daniel and says, there's something different about you, Daniel. And maybe he hasn't quite put his finger on it just yet, but he says, I believe the Spirit of God's actually dwell within you, that God has taken residency within you. I want to spend my life, and my desire is that you would want to spend your life as well, reflecting the glory of God. That people would look upon my countenance and that they would see Jesus. And now, am I perfect in this? Absolutely not. Ask my wife and my children. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. But that's my desire. I want to reflect the glory of Jesus. I want people to be attracted to Jesus when they see what Jesus has done for me. Amen? Now, look at this. The next portion here, we're going to see the admonition of Daniel. Daniel is now going to respond to this dream. Pick it up in verse 19. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, boy, that's kind of repeated pretty often, right? Was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Okay, that word alarmed there, it literally means horrified. Daniel heard the dream, and he was literally horrified at hearing this dream. It's like immediately something in his spirit, he knew something was wrong. Something is not right here. 
He was horrified. What does this show us? This shows us that Daniel had a heart for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had a heart for the king. Let's go a level deeper than that. Daniel had a heart for the lost. He saw what God's judgment was going to look like in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and he was horrified for Nebuchadnezzar. How could this possibly be? He was moved. There's this, there's this account in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is walking throughout the countrysides. And these people are flocking to him. I mean thronging to him. And they're bringing sick people. And they're bringing demon-possessed people. And he's healing them all. And Jesus sees them on the horizon and they're approaching. And he looks to his disciples and he looks out there. And, he's, and the scripture says that he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were helpless and they were harassed like sheep that have no shepherd. And then he looks to his disciples and he says, do you see the field is white for harvest? But there's just no one to go to work the harvest. There's no one to send to these people. Pray that the God of the harvest would send the workers to the harvest. He had such a compassion for these people. They're coming. They're in need. They're desperate. They need healing. They need a touch from God. And Jesus was moved with compassion for them. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it says this, that he saw the city, a city that wasn't prepared to receive their Messiah, a, a city that wasn't ready to welcome in Jesus into their ranks. And he says that he wept over the city. Jesus wept this shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Because of the condition of the lostness of the people. Think about that for a moment. Do our hearts really break like that over the lost condition of our culture? And if our hearts do not break like that, why do our hearts not break like that? Should our hearts not break like that? The Apostle Paul would say this in, to, when writing to the church in Rome in Chapter uh, 9, verses 1 through 3, he would say, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He says, look, I'm not lying here. This is the truth. I, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. What does Paul say? He says, my heart breaks for the Jews that are lost. And I would gladly receive a curse if it meant that my countrymen, my fellow Jews, could be saved. That they could be enlightened. That they could, that they could be found. That they would no longer be lost. That was Paul's heart. I want you to take note of this and write this down. But in Ezra chapter 9... We see Ezra the priest respond in such a compassionate way when he finds out the people are in sin. And this is what I want you to understand here. I believe that the church fails in two ways. If you're taking notes, again, this isn't a fill in the blank, but these are important. The first thing I think the way the church fails in this area of compassion over the lost, like Daniel had this compassion for Nebuchadnezzar who is going to be judged. He was horrified by it. The first thing that we're, where we struggle is we don't have, a, we are not horrified. We're not terrified when we look out at the culture and we see the culture involved in sin. And what we think as the church is, well, you know what? My life is put together pretty well. That doesn't affect me. It's just fine. Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, go there and read this tonight. He, 
returns with the exiles who'd been taken away to Babylon, who'd spent this time in captivity. He's trying to rebuild Jerusalem, trying to rebuild the city, trying to rebuild the temple. And this is what happens. It comes to his attention that there were some Jews during the exile who had taken pagan wives. And God had said, don't take pagan wives from the pagan nations because they will lead your heart astray. And the scripture says that he's mortified by this, that he falls on his hands and his face before the Lord. He tears his clothing. He pulls hair out of his head. If I had any, I'd pull it out. He pulls his beard out. He's grieved over the condition of the people and he fasts and he mourns and he weeps. And then there comes a time of confession. And though he hadn't been involved in that pagan uh, marriage and he hadn't married a pagan wife, when the confession time comes, do you know what Ezra says? He goes before the Lord and he says, God, we have sinned against you. The sin of the culture is just not the culture's problem. The sin of the culture is absolutely the problem of the church. If we are supposed to be salt and if we are supposed to be light, when the culture is perishing, when the culture is lost, there is something that has happened and the effectiveness of the church has been compromised. It shouldn't be that way. Ezra says, Lord, this is my sin as much as it is the people's sin because this happened under my watch. What if the church would rise up and come into the presence of the Lord and confess on behalf of the culture, the sin of the culture? Would God maybe turn the hearts of the culture? If we stopped looking at the sins of the culture as their sins and we started looking at the sins of the culture as our sins, Maybe when we started to seek God on behalf of those sins, maybe God would turn the heart of the culture. Daniel was concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. His heart broke. He wept like Jesus wept. He, he was moved with the same kind of compassion that Jesus had for the sheep that didn't have a shepherd. Right? Now, the first thing is that that's what we do. We, we, uh, we don't treat serious enough the sins of the culture. But the second thing, the second area or way that the church has a tendency to err is when we do try to address the sins of the culture, we come across as condescending and condemning. Think about that just for a moment, right? The church likes to speak out against homosexuality. The church likes to speak out against abortion. Are these things sin? Yes. But you know where we err is in our tone. Do you know where we err? We err in the fact that we lift those sins up and we say, look, these sins are worse than the sins of greed and gluttony and lust and pornography that happens within the church. We look at the culture and we say, your sins are worse than our sins, and that is not true. And we come across condemning and condescending. This is what I want you to understand. When Jesus corrected people in the Gospels. When he pointed out sin, do you realize that those people didn't leave feeling condemned? They left with hope. You know who went away from the presence of Jesus feeling frustrated and angry and upset? It was the religious people who went away feeling that way. But the sinners, when they were in the presence of Jesus, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, right? When they came into the presence of Jesus, they felt welcomed. They found hope. Hey, I could be set free from this. I don't have to live this way anymore. Right? But that's not what happens in the church today when sinners 
from our culture come into the church, they feel condemned, right? It's one thing to feel convicted by the Holy Spirit when they feel talked down to, condescended to, condemned by the church. That is wrong, right? Now, I want you to see how does Daniel address this? How does, what is his tone like? Again, because Daniel's going to be in a very awkward place here where he's going to have to call sin, sin. He's going to have to call Nebuchadnezzar out on things. But his tone is a tone of compassion. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't walk away feeling frustrated or angry or upset. That's not what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. So let's continue reading here. Daniel chapter 4. Look at what happens. Again, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him, horrified him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the the dream or the interpretation alarm you. So here, the king actually looks at Daniel. He sees, I don't know if his face, face went flush. I don't know if he could tell that he was really struggling with what he was, was understanding from this dream. But the king actually says to Daniel, look, Daniel, just give it to me straight, man. I can see you know. I can see you understand it. Just give it to me straight. Right? So what happens? Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. I don't wish this on you, king. This isn't what I want for you. I, I don't want this interpretation to come to pass for you. I would rather this happen for your enemies or those who hate you, but not for you, king. This isn't what my heart is for you, king, but I can't withhold the word. Look at what he says. He goes on here. He, he says this, the tree you saw, tree speaks of a kingdom in scripture oftentimes, like a mountain would. So this tree is symbolic of a kingdom. This kingdom or this tree which you saw grew and became strong and its top reached heaven and it was visible to the end of the earth whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant and in it was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branch the birds of the heavens lived. Now look at this. It is you. The tree is you, the tree that's going to be cut down and judged is you. Is it always easy to speak a word like that? Absolutely not, but right will always be right. And listen to me, you have a responsibility before the Lord and for the lost to never allow the truth to change. The truth is always the truth. What is right is always right. It doesn't change according to circumstances, right? There, you have to speak the truth. And this is what Daniel says. He says, this, it, this dream, this tree, it's you. Just like the prophet Nathan would stand before David. And he came to David and he says, look, let me tell you a story. There was a man who was very wealthy and he had hundreds of sheep in his flock. And there was a poor man who saved up his money and bought this this lamb from birth, and he fed this lamb by hand, and he allowed this lamb to eat at his table, and he held this lamb in his arms, and when a visitor came, the visitor came to visit the the rich man, the rich man didn't want to prepare one of his own sheep as a meal, so he steals the poor man's sheep and prepares it for his guest, and David is enraged. How could you possibly, how could this man have done this thing? This is not right. This isn't, this isn't good. This man, let's find this man. Show me who this man is. He'll have to restore fourfold because he didn't show mercy. And Nathan looks David in the eye. This prophet looks the king in the eye and says, you are the man. Because God gave you everything. He gave you 
Saul's wives. You have wives and riches and all that you could possibly want, but you saw one man's wife while she bathed on a roof, and you had to have her as your own. That was his only wife. Look at all of the wives you have. You are that man. That's not an easy thing to do, but understand this. It is absolutely necessary from time to time. To look someone in the eye and to say, it is you. The one I'm speaking about is you. Elijah did the same thing with Jezebel and King Ahab. You, you can see the same thing happen with John and Herod. And it actually cost John his life. He was beheaded because he spoke out against the sinfulness of, the, the, of Herod's relationship. It is absolutely necessary to speak out of this way. He says, it is you, O king. Again, notice he's not holding back. He's not tethering the truth. He's giving the truth. But notice his tone. I don't want this to happen to you, King. This isn't my heart for you. But this dream, it's about you. Thanks for joining us today for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. The church office is open Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 590 West Orange Avenue in El Centro. Or call 760-337-9400 for information or for prayer. Christ Community Church has three campuses in El Centro, Raleigh, and Calexico, plus a congregation in Spanish. As we navigate the end of the COVID-19 quarantine season and transition to in-person regathering, we encourage you to find up-to-date information about events and each campus's worship service schedule. When you follow us on social media, on our website at www.cccib.org or simply download the cccib app you'll find the direct link to the app at www.cccib.org forward slash get the app or when you text cccib app to 77977